Isaac Dennison's short story, Babette's Feast, tells the story of a mysterious French housekeeper who comes to a remote community and works selflessly for a couple of sisters. Babette herself had once been a chef in a great Paris restaurant and now humbly takes the role of servant of all. A lottery ticket, steadily renewed by friends back in Paris, wins Babette the grand prize of 10,000 francs. She extracts permission from the sisters to throw a memorial dinner, a real French dinner at her own cost. Unknown to everyone, of course, she spends every penny she has on the ingredients. She imports them from France, and she prepares a magnificent feast. And if you know anything you know that there is no feast greater than a French feast. Well, there is placed on the table the finest culinary delicacies. The wine is poured out in excess. The celebration around the table does more than satisfy hunger. It intensifies every taste, every sense of taste. It seems to meet the most profound longings of the heart. It heals old wounds. It brings great joy. In fact, it shadows the infinite grace that had been allotted to them. And they did not even wonder at the fact, for it had been but the fulfillment of an ever-present hope. The idea of a great banquet, of a feast, of fine food and fine wine is one of those pictures, one of those themes that recurs throughout all of Scripture. Wherever you go in the Bible, whether you go to Mount Sinai with Moses and the representatives of Israel sitting down at a feast with God, or whether you come to this passage here, or whether you look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus when he was here on earth, you take Luke's gospel, for example. Somebody has, a scholar has defined Luke's gospel Uh, as being uh, built around meals. Jesus is either going to a meal, or he is sitting at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. The the whole of that gospel, spilling over into the book of Acts, is about the feast. And of course, the kingdom of God is described as a party. The blessings of the gospel are often described as festive food, suitable for a marriage banquet. Jesus makes this clear. He sends out the invitation in Matthew 22, go into the street corners and invite them to a banquet. Invite anyone you find. This imagery then, this rich imagery of a table, of a feast, of a banquet, is put before the church whenever we sit around the Lord's table. We know we've not arrived at the feast because you only get diced bread in our church and you don't even get wine. But nonetheless, and I'll keep on about this until we do, nonetheless, it is a foretaste, it is a pointer to the reality of which the gospel speaks. It is a powerful picture. A picture painted in Psalm 22 after the work of the suffering servant. The poor will eat and be satisfied. And all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. And so with the richest of foods, in God alone our souls find their ultimate satisfaction. Now that is the theme of Isaiah 55. 
The prophet has taken us so far. In the first part of his book, he has profiled the coming leader. In the second part of the book, he has told us a surprising thing, that the leader will be despised and rejected and killed, and then rise again from the dead. And now, having risen from the dead, recorded in chapter 53, and having announced that good news to all the people who were expecting him and waiting for him and looking for him, here in chapter 55, The invitation now is extended to others. And the first thing you notice in this chapter is the freeness of the invitation. Having described the work of salvation and said that it was utterly accomplished by the suffering servant, the Messiah, when he comes to take our place and bear our sin and endure our punishment, having done that work, now the effects of it. Now the results of it are in and they are freely available, freely available to all those who will receive them. In fact, back in chapter 54, very last verse, very last sentence of that verse, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is what has been accomplished for the servants of the Lord. But the question is, Are you a servant of the Lord? And do you have a part in that heritage? And so you come to this great chapter that begins with this great invitation. Come, come, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I want you to notice who is invited here. Individuals are invited here. You are invited here this morning. Each one of us has needs which only the gospel can meet. There are two kinds of people, I think, in these opening words that are described here. There are those who know that they have a need. There are those who are thirsty. And there are those who have no money. That is, they have nothing to bargain with. They have nothing to pay with. They don't have a credit card. They don't have cash. They have nothing. These people recognize that they have nothing. That if when they receive this gospel invitation, they are already aware that they have a fundamental need in their hearts. They have come to an end of themselves. They have pushed the boat in their life and they've discovered that having pushed the boat, there is, there is nowhere to go. Life is meaningless. A tale told by an idiot. And one of my neighbors in Richmond used to sing, they can't find no satisfaction. He used to jog past me every morning. I'd say, hi, Mick. And uh, couldn't get any satisfaction. For those of you who are too young to know the Rolling Stones, you missed real music. I mean, real rock and roll music. So there are those who know they have a need, that there is a missing dimension in their lives, and it's those who are introduced to, were introduced to when the first come. But there are other people, there are other people who don't feel any need. They're described as people who have got money to spend. Verse 2, they are fully employed. They have labor that they can engage in. Uh, They're not aware of any need. They're not aware of any need that they can't buy or that they can't work for. They are, if you will, self-sufficient. They are in need of nothing. They're not looking for a free lunch. They would not thank you for it. They have enough money to buy their own. Thank you very much. And anything that's free, they are suspicious of. And they're able to look for it themselves. 
They can go on the search themselves. They can hunt for it themselves. They can work for it themselves. They see no need of a savior because they feel no sense of sin. They don't look for satisfaction because they are satisfied. Thank you very much indeed. There is no innermost longing of which they are conscious. And if there was, they have the time to kill, the money to spend, the energy to party, the personality to socialize, the interest to stimulate. They can do that on their own. Thank you very much indeed. They tear away the mask. Let the economy fail. Let a cherished relationship fall apart. And you too may discover the hollowness of it all, the meaninglessness of it all, the directionlessness of life. And the Lord asks to you who feel self-satisfied, do you notice the question he asks you, verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, that is for that which does not sustain life? Why do you labor for that which does not ultimately, eternally satisfy Maybe you're already discovering precisely what he's talking about here. That all your money and all your hard work and all your results and all the accolades you've received have not brought you the satisfaction, the contentment, the meaning, the significance that you're looking for in life. Look at verse 2 again. Listen diligently to me, says the Lord. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. God says, I'm not just talking here about getting by. I'm not talking about rations. I'm not talking about the finger food at a party. I'm talking about the real deal here. I'm talking about a French dinner, a French meal, rich food, good food, nutritious food, the right ingredients. I'm talking about something that will really satisfy you. Listen diligently. What is he offering? What is he offering to you? A number of things are on offer here. Do you notice there's water? That's kind of basic. Water that refreshes the dry and dead soul. There is spiritual milk there for nourishment to strengthen weak souls. There is wine here, wine for the exhilaration of the spirit, the joy of the sad and disheartened souls. Wine is a luxury here. So it's not just basics, it's the luxuries that are on offer. And these things, do you notice, there are no additives here, there are no substitutes here. The key phrase is verse 2, is verse 3, incline your ear. Come to me, God says. Come to me and hear that your soul might live. Ultimately, you are to come to the Lord. You're to come to the Lord Messiah. You're to come to the Lord Jesus. He and he alone can satisfy the desires of your heart. He and he alone reaches the parts of your life that nothing else can reach or satisfy. He meets the needs that nothing else that is available on the market can meet. He comes to resolve the tension between God and humanity. He comes to deal with the sin problem, the barrier, the great barricade of sin that keeps us out of heaven. He is the one who comes not only to do all of that and to forgive sin and cleanse sin, but to satisfy you in your innermost, deepest being. 
He comes to offer himself to you. And what are we to do? What are we to do about this invitation? Look what he says we are to do. There's a threefold call by, followed by a threefold listen in these verses. We hear a call to come, a call to buy and eat, a call to come because there's no money needed and the banquet is free. And all of these calls underline the fact that it is a call to believe, a call to trust, a call to take what's on offer with empty hands, without any negotiation, with no strings attached. This is free at the point of delivery. It asks nothing but that you believe the offer to be a legitimate offer and that you receive what is offered with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. Now that is not to say that what is an offer has been cheap or second rate. We have that saying, don't we? You get what you pay for. And so the suspicion might be that this is an inferior stuff that is an offer. But do you notice the repetition of the verb to buy? It comes up again and again and again. To buy, what does that mean? It means to transfer ownership from one person to another. So you come and you take this thing and you you buy it so it becomes yours. But the point is you don't pay for it. You get it, but you don't pay for it. It becomes yours, but you haven't paid for it. But it is costly. And he's already argued, he's already demonstrated that the price paid for this feast of good things has been paid to the fool by another, by another, acting on your part, taking your place, paying what you owe. That was spelt out in Isaiah 53. He has paid for it all. You sit down at the feast of good things, and it is free to you. You can enjoy the whole evening. You're not paying the tab at the end of the night. It's that free. It's that good. It's that available to you. This is a free invitation. This is the free offer of the gospel. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And now it's available to those who will believe that and receive it, make it their own. But there's more here than just the free invitation. I want you to know this is guaranteed. This invitation is guaranteed. There's a guarantee that goes with the invitation. We noticed in verse 3 that we are to come to him. Incline your ear and come to me. And then he goes on at the end of verse 3. To make this promise or to give this guarantee. Come to me and hear that your soul may live. That is that you might have everlasting life, eternal life. And I will make with you, here's God's guarantee, an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Now you think, what is David to do with it? Which David is he talking about? Well, he's talking about King David, of course, and he is reflecting back earlier on in the book of Isaiah in which he has made it very clear that the Messiah, when he comes, will be a son of David. He will be a greater David figure. 
Just as David was a great king, so the Messiah will be a great, a greater David, a greater king. But he will be descended from David. He'll be born of a virgin. But he will have divine titles, divine honors. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He's already painted the picture of this one who's to come. And what God is saying is that that God himself has made an everlasting covenant with David about this one who's to come. You remember how God came to David. It's captured in Psalm 89. Let me read it to you. Psalm 89 verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my Messiah, my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring, that's the Messiah, forever and build your throne for all generations. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him, the Messiah, forever. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Isaiah picks on that psalm. He draws out of that psalm the language that we have here in this text before us this morning. The terms of this invitation, the blessings in this invitation are guaranteed by the one who is coming, by God's promises to him, by God's determination, the covenant he made with David, that in this coming Messiah, there would be everlasting, eternal life for his people. And you know, when the angel comes to Mary to announce to Mary the conception in her womb of Jesus by a mighty act of God, the angel says this to her, behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Yeshua. Jehovah is Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign on that throne over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The promise of the sure mercies to David is fulfilled in Jesus. And it is that fulfillment that is the guarantee that everything that's involved in that, the package of eternal life that is wrapped up in that, is for you and will last forever. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, when God spoke to David, he said this, my grace, my mercy shall not depart from him, but your house and kingdom will be made sure forever. And Isaiah picks up the idea of grace, the idea of eternity, and the idea of being sure. He picks those words up. And he says that's the nature of this covenant that is the guarantee behind the invitation That God will not renege on his promise. God will not back away from his promise. He will bring it to completeness. He will do all that he has promised to do for you. He will provide all that he has promised to provide for you. He's He's not inviting you to 
a great banquet and then when you arrive you're given the ingredients and go and told to make a meal for yourself no 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 it's all going to be there provided for you and he goes on here do you notice he goes on to tell us more about the messiah behold i made him the messiah a witness to the peoples and a leader and a commander for the peoples a witness to the peoples Jesus said in John 18, for this I was born and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. In Revelation chapter 1, John says, Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, picking up Psalm 89, and the leader, same word as is used in Isaiah, the leader of the kings of the earth. He is the one whose character, whose person guarantees the word of God that underwrites the invitation to you if you hear it and respond to it and come to Christ today. But the third thing we learn from this chapter is that there is an urgency in the invitation. You are invited, but we want your immediate response. Immediate response requested. You can't just leave it. You have to do something about it. The invitation has gone out. There are decisions to be made. And so in verse 6, there's a reissuing of the invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So here's the point. You may be thinking about becoming a Christian. You may be considering becoming a Christian. Here are some things I want to say to you from this chapter. Don't delay because you think you have plenty of time. You know, sometimes we think that. People say to themselves, well, you know, I know there's this religion thing and And Christianity, irritatingly, is always coming up with ideas. I'm just dusting this as I go along. And uh, always coming up with ideas. And and I need to to look at those and investigate them. And I'm I'm going to do that. One day day I'm going to take a sabbatical and and I'll I'll read the Bible or I'll listen to some Christian teaching and, and I'll investigate the matter. You're one of those people. Or maybe you're one of these people that think, well, you know... If there is a God, on my deathbed, I may just, at that point, just to, make, to be sure, to be sure, as the Irish would say, I will, I will put myself right with God then. I'll leave it till then. Well, I want you to hear the word of God this morning. Listen, look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. He may be found in this room this morning because he's speaking to you. Therefore, he may be found this morning. You cannot guarantee five minutes after the service ends. You cannot guarantee ten minutes after the service ends. You cannot guarantee that at the end of your life you're going to have time to consider the things of God. Call upon his name. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't delay because you think you have plenty of time. Secondly, don't delay because you think... Now, this is too hard a thing to do. Again, look at the language that's used. Seek, call. You you know what seeking involves. You lose something, 
You seek it. I remember we were out walking in Windsor Great Park. We used to live near there in London, near Windsor, Windsor Castle. And, and we were out walking in the park. We parked the car somewhere, got back to the car. And uh, it's a wild and woolly area. It's, it's not paved or anything. And I, was take, I thought I'd take out my contact lenses there, which is a bit silly. But anyway, I, I, I did. I took them both out. And the wind blew them away. They're hard contact lenses, so you can't really do without them. I had not brought my glasses with me, so this was a serious problem. I had to drive the whole family home, so I mobilized the whole family to look for them. They went hunting all over the, the grit, the dirt, uh, the, the leaves, in among the... We thought they were gone for good. Christine prayed about it, as she does. And irritatingly, she found them, as she always <laughs> does. I, is this, is this something you women are trained for? I mean, do you get special training at finding things that men can't find just to make us feel small? Is, is, it, is it part of your upbringing? Anyway, she found them. Well, that's what, that's what seeking means. It means looking. Are you interested in looking for the things of God? Are you prepared to take the risk of looking, of seeking, whether or not there is a God? Well, what, what could you do about that? Well, supposing you don't believe in God, are you prepared to take up an experiment? Are you prepared to say, God, I don't believe you exist, but if you exist, I'd like your help in investigating what it is Christians believe. Are you prepared to take the risk of doing that? You may be risking your entire future. You may be risking your entire eternity for the good. To seek is to look for something. And to call. Again, when you're, when you're looking for a person, you call out their name. I was going to sing you a song. Just call out my name. And you know, wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. That one. Remember that one? Did it sound anything like the original? No. When you call, someone should at least respond to the call. Calling on God is as simple as that. We want to make it more complex. You don't, have to, you don't have to be able to explain how it is that God is three and one and one and three. You don't have to be able to explain the two natures of Christ, the divine and the human in one person. We'll explain that to you in time. You'll, have, you'll really have a good hang on that before you get to heaven. But... At the very beginning of the Christian life, you don't have to know much even. You need to call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. The way in, you know, to the kingdom of God is so low. God is gracious to call us that way. So don't, be, don't delay because you think this is all too hard. If you want to know if God is there, ask him. If you want to know if God is there and want him to help you understand, ask him. It's idiot proof. Even you can do that. Thirdly, don't delay because you think there is no problem. Look at verse 7 again. Maybe you say, well, I, I'm, I'm not really interested in looking at Christianity because I, I, I don't think there's any problem that I need to address in my, in my life. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. I want you to notice that God thinks you've got a problem, even if you don't. 
And the problem has to do with the way you're going and with what you're thinking. Do you notice that? The way you're going and what you're thinking. Our ways and our thoughts take us in the wrong direction and they take us away from God and they take us into terrible judgment from God. That's the reality. It goes on to tell you something about God's thoughts. Verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You think you're on the right way? I want you to know you're in the wrong way if you're not going my way. You think you're thinking rational, clear-headed, big, impressive thoughts? Your thoughts are nothing to me, says God. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. Let him return to the Lord. That's the thing. You think there's not a problem? Well, apparently there is a problem. You need to forsake your ways and thoughts and seek the Lord. If ever you're going to have your mind cleared and your way straightened to him. There's another thing here. Don't delay because you think you've gone too far. Look at that again at that verse 7, the latter part of it. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to your God, for he will abundantly pardon. No matter how wicked your way, no matter how unrighteous your thoughts, if you turn to the Lord, he will abundantly pardon. There is no skeleton in your cupboard. There is no blot on your copybook. There is no blemish in your character. There is no crime on your record for which God does not have the commensurate pardon. Isn't that amazing? No shame, no guilt, no fear to keep you away from him that he will not deal with, that he will not cleanse, that he will not pardon, that he will not renew. That's the reality of salvation in Christ. This is a big salvation. This is a big God who will abundantly pardon. In other words, there is more pardon than there is problem. More pardon than there is sin. He will abundantly pardon. Super abundantly above all that you can ask. Or think. Turning to the Lord, turning to the Lord means turning from other gods and saviors, other supports and comforts, other values and treasures. It means turning to Him. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And the next thing is this don't delay because you think this is too good to be true. Look at verse 10. Too good to be true. If you are persuaded today that there is a massive barrier between our unrighteous, our wicked ways and our impure, unrighteous thoughts and God's ways and God's thoughts, if you're convinced that there is a great gulf there, an infinite moral distance between God and you, with God in heaven and you on earth, what can bridge that gulf? What can bridge that divide? Look at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. Now, in Isaiah as well as elsewhere in the Old Testament and New Testament. Heaven, of course, is the place where sometimes it's used of the sky above. 
Sometimes it's used of that place where God is at home, where he's intensely present, where God lives, if, if you like. Not that God lives in any one place, but it's for our sakes to understand. So the he- heaven and the heaven of heavens, the place where God is. And when we read about something coming down from heaven, we're to understand that here he's using the rain and the snow coming down from the sky as an illustration of something that comes from above down to where we are. So let, let, run with the illustration. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Now get the picture. Snow and rain come from Above, down to where we are. The word of God comes from heaven, down to where we are. It meets us right here, where we are at this moment in our lives. It comes from above, down to where we are. It is spoken from heaven and comes down to earth. It crosses the barricade. It crosses the divide. It reaches over this infinite moral distance between God and me. It, the word incarnate the word became flesh and the word of the gospel comes to your ears it comes to your ears in this room this morning the word the good news of the gospel inviting you to come to christ is in your ear and in your ear is the word of faith this is what you have to do believe it it's right by you the apostle paul picks up this whole metaphor and he applies it to the believer and to the preaching of the gospel and he says the word of faith is near you it is on your mouth you just have to say I believe and in verse 11 we have this great encouragement that the word of God this word of God that's being let loose this word of God that you are hearing this morning is not an empty word or a powerless word it is a living word Here's a reassurance to the church whenever we preach the gospel. Here's a reassurance to you as an individual believer as you share the gospel with colleagues or friends or family members who don't believe it. Here's a reassurance to you. That little word, that little word you have spoken, that little word that you have shared is not a powerless thing. It is not a small thing. It is not an insignificant thing. That little word will do the work God sent it to do in people's lives hearts it always does it may it may forever seal them to the gospel that's one result or it may be part of a whole series of little things in their life that will lead them ultimately to come to Christ for themselves well With that, we come to the very last verses of the chapter, verses 12 and 13. For here's the content of the promise that's in the invitation. Here's the content of the promise that is in the invitation. What is God promising to do? Well, look at verse 12. You just don't get a better picture, do you? I mean, the words just, they just kind of drip with, with pleasure and with joy. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace and capture the picture here 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 is a picture of 
the restoration of the cosmos. Here is a picture of you being changed, you leaving with joy in your heart, and then all of nature being caught up in the joy of your experience. You will go out with joy. Here's the promise and the invitation. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. You can leave this room today full of the joy of the Lord at being your strength. You can leave this room today knowing that you are at peace with God and that the warfare between you and God is all over once and for all. You can go out with joy. And here's the long-term effect of your joy. Paul says in Romans 8, all creation, the whole of creation is waiting for the day when the children of God, the sons of God will be revealed. That is the day of the resurrection of the body, the day when the fullness of our salvation, which is not only the salvation of our soul, but the resurrection of the body comes true. On that day, all creation waits in eager expectation. For that day when the children of God will be revealed. For on that day, creation, which is in bondage to corruption, will be liberated from its bondage. And the mountains and hills before you will break into singing. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. They're obviously not Presbyterian. But they'll clap their hands with joy on that great day. Here is all of nature joining in the joy of the believer who accepts the invitation to the great party that is the kingdom of God. And not only the renewal of the cosmos, the cosmos is renewed because the curse is removed. The cosmos is renewed because the curse is removed. Verse 13. That's the ultimate result of salvation for individuals. It is the renewal of the cosmos because the curse is removed. Remember the curse is spoken in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. But now the curse is lifted instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle in other words the curse is gone no more let sins and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground he comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard and the, shall lie down with a young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened lamb together and a little child shall lead them. As our Andrew, when he was eight years old, said, I can't wait for the new earth when I get to hug a tiger. <laughs> the renewal of the cosmos. You see, this is it. This invitation is an invitation to joy. I want you to notice something. The gospel invitation does not talk about diminishing you one little bit. The gospel invitation does not talk about taking something from you, but of giving an incredible amount to you. It does not diminish you. It does not rob you. It does not steal from you. It gives you life in its fullness. 
joy in abundance. That's the gospel invitation. And it comes to all those that seek the Lord. While they may be found in the Lord is the Lord Jesus. The Lord is the Lord Jesus who died for his people. Who took their sin. Paid the punishment. On himself. Has paid for the feast. And he invites you to come. I want to ask you this morning. You're not a Christian. Will you seek the Lord while he may be found? Will you look for him? Will you call on him? Maybe you're a Christian and you've, you've messed up big time. And you wonder whether there's a way back for you. This invitation is for you too. To return. To return. To find your way back into the, your father's presence. And as Jesus told the story, you remember the great feast that was spread. The gospel feast. For the returning prodigal. That's where we're aiming. That's where we're going. That's our destination. Will you join us in the journey? Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would take your word and seal it to our minds and hearts. And that you would draw to yourself those who as yet are trying to buy and labor on their own. That you would bring them to yourself, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.